Open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. I just want to read in opening this morning the first four verses. We will look back at a few different scriptures this morning, but I will begin an an introduction to the book of Hebrews this morning. So there will be different things that we consider uh, in kind of an overarching view of Hebrews. And um, I won't always be going in. This is not exposition at this point. We will get to exposition, but I want to do some introduction to the book of Hebrews to help us hopefully think through it in an overarching sense and its, its background and, and context. Hebrews 1, beginning in verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning for who you are in your very being and how you have spoken throughout all time, space, and history by giving your word through your prophets and then sending your very Son. We praise you for the very gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus. All that you have done in and through him, we must pause and give genuine thanks to you, Lord. It pleased you to not only send him, but to crush him. And to raise him from the dead. By the power of your very spirit. We give you honor and glory. For all you have done in and through your son. Giving praise to the Lord Jesus for his obedience. And all that he did on this earth. give praise for his preaching and teaching, the miracles, the signs, the wonders. We give praise that these were covenant signs of fulfillment. We give praise that through him you have given sufficient evidence of your glorious salvation. Lord, we confess that we're not worthy of this salvation. We confess we are in need of your grace. 
And we give you thanks for your grace to us as sinners through your Son, the Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. This morning I want, in this introduction to the book of Hebrews, I want to begin by answering different questions, kind of giving us some context to the book of Hebrews. Um, some of you have been around a while, you know that I will tend to do this when I, I start to uh, look at a particular book of the Bible. Um, and it's to give you some, some of the, the background to a book so you're not just uh, looking at that book in, in uh, just a, a sense of not understanding what may be in the, the background of, of what's been written. So this morning I want to begin with answering this question, when was the letter to the Hebrews written? When was the letter to the Hebrews written? Often the difficulty of dating some of these books is not that we don't have an idea, it's that we can't give an exact date or an exact year. Uh, sometimes it's easier with some of the New Testament books than it is others. Um, but an exact year is difficult to pinpoint uh, for the book of Hebrews. We know it was in use as early as the 90s A.D. So it's, it's in use at the very end of the first century. One writer says, The historical testimony regarding the authorship of Hebrews begins with Clement of Rome's clear use of the epistle in his letter to the Corinthians. And Clement of Rome wrote or penned a letter to the Corinthian church and he used excerpts from the letter to the Hebrews to prove some of his points and to press some of his points upon uh, the readers in Corinth. Um, another writer says, because of Clement, we can say that Hebrews was composed before A.D. 96. In that year, Clement of Rome wrote his epistle to the Corinthian church and incorporated a number of quotations and allusions from the Hebrews in his epistle. Um, so we at least begin with an idea that we see the book or the letter to the Hebrews being used in Christian writing uh, as uh, early as 96 A.D. Uh, now that gives us a sense of understanding that it had to be written sometime before 96 A.D. Um, and that's important because that means that uh, early generations of Christians were looking at the book of Hebrews or this letter in, in you know, parchment. Uh, they were looking at it and reading it. It was being read to them out loud. They were hearing it read to them in these uh, second generation, third generation uh, believers. Um, so we can say that an approximate time frame of the writing of the book of Hebrews is more identifiable. An approximate time frame of its writing is more identifiable. Um, now, I'm more sure of these statements I'm about to make than some others I will make. Uh, but it is written before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. I'm more sure of that. It is written before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Uh, there's some internal evidence that I want to 
give to you to, to, to show that. Uh, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. Now I'm just giving you some examples. It's not all of the examples, but it's some of the examples. In Hebrews chapter 8, uh, the author has gotten to a place of uh, really pressing upon us the better ministry of Christ and the, as covenant high priest of His people. But in making his point, we'll start in verse 1. He says, Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. So he's giving you a perspective of post-Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection, here's what's been accomplished. Here's this high priest who has taken his seat after the ascension at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens. And he is a minister in the sanctuary, in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. And then in verse 3, it's contrast comparison for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. This phrase in verse 4, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, this is in the present active tense. Those who offer the gifts. It's as if the writer is saying, this is still happening at the time of my writing this. Look at Hebrews chapter 9. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1, Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship. He's talking about this first covenant and its regulations. And here's the first covenant. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. And verse 3, behind the second veil there was a tabernacle. And then he unfolds the Holy of Holies having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden jar holding the manna. Verse 5, and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Verse 6, now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle forming the divine worship. Here's another present active sense. This is happening uh, in this time frame, not only in the past, but the writer is giving an, an instance, an idea that it is ongoing and still happening at the time of the writing. So these sacrifices are still being made. The, the tabernacle, the, the temple is still there. And the priests are still doing these things in accordance with the first or the old covenant. If we uh, look at Hebrews 
10.1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually. Another present active sense. The same sacrifices by which they offer continually. It's happening. As the writer of the letter is penning this letter or or writing these thoughts, the sacrificial system is still going on. It's still happening. Hebrews 13.10. He says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. I want you to think about his wording here. We have an altar, speaking of believers. Now, he's, he's writing to believers, and we'll get into that some a little bit later. But he says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle. It's not served. It's those who serve the tabernacle. Those who are doing it now, it's ongoing. It's still happening Those who are doing that now in accordance with the old covenant, they don't have the same right to eat that we do of the Lord's Supper, of the context of thinking of the food that's given in in the body, the broken body of Christ and the blood that's shed. This is an ongoing activity. He's saying they don't have a right to this. They keep continuing on with the old covenant. It's still happening. So I think even internally from examples like this in these present active tense statements, we can say the temple has not been destroyed. Jerusalem has not been destroyed. It's before A.D. 70 that this letter is being penned, written, or it wouldn't have been penned. I don't, I don't know if they would have used that phrase, but it's being written. Um, and so I feel very comfortable uh, and think very comfortably in the context of recognizing this letter being written uh, before AD 70. Now, there's another reason for that, too. Um, these phrases not only indicate that the temple is still standing and still in use, uh, but it's the context of the letter and the whole. It, if the letter was written after A.D. 70, why does it not mention the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem? Now, I want us to think about that for a minute. And it's important for us to think about it because the present tense examples that I just gave you, there are some Greek scholars who try to argue, well, those are not uh, always uh, written in that sense, and you can't use that form. Now, others argue that you can. Um, And I would argue that in this letter, the 
Greek tense is important. But for those who want to say, well, you can't always use that argument, what about the fact that if this letter was written after A.D. 70, it mentions nothing of the destruction of the temple or Jerusalem. It mentions nothing of it. Now, I think that's really, really important due to the fact of the very contents of the letter itself. Think about the contents, the examples, and the purpose of the letter. Now, chapter 1 and chapter 2 are going to open up to us uh, a very uh, thoughtful and somewhat detailed explanation of who Christ is. Jesus, the Messiah, who he is. And it's, the letter is going to set out to prove not only who Christ is, but what he accomplished in his life, his death, uh, and his resurrection. And the purpose of that is to show us that there is a better covenant and a better ministry, verse or chapter 7, 8, 9, this better covenant, better ministry is in Christ. It's interesting how the writer chooses to do that. Go back. We're going to use not just the exact same examples, but look at chapter 7. The Hebrews writer unfolds for us the importance of the priesthood and it unfolds it from the Old Testament and it unfolds it from a beginning portion of Melchizedek. It begins to show to us the importance of Melchizedek in uh, the king of Salem, but then his explanation of that is not just to tell us something historical about Melchizedek, but it's to make a link to the Lord Jesus that he is considered the high priest, the priest forever, an eternal priest. He unfolds that in chapter 7, and look at verse 23. He says, The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. So there's a comparison, contrast and comparison with the priesthood in general. Priests in the old covenant were humans. And there had to be lots and lots of them. Uh, at, at the time of, of Christ in his life, it said that uh, uh, in Jerusalem and surrounding Jerusalem in various places, there could have been as many as 20,000 priests. Even in the, the time of this letter, there would have been upwards of, of that many priests. They had to have a lot of them. They were going to die. They needed them to be continually offering these sacrifices on behalf of the people. It needed to be a continual and ongoing work. And the only way for that to happen in a human sense was for there to be a lot of them who could do it and keep it going. It's almost like an assembly line. When car production ramped up after World War II, uh, 
especially, and even during World War II, where they're making parts, these assembly lines were working 24-7. And they had to have the manpower for it. Putting them in, putting them in. People get tired, right? They need sleep. Then people die. And you got to have somebody to go on the assembly line. Well, the contrast and comparison here is that the Lord Jesus is not like that. But the example he uses is the very priesthood itself. There's a difference between the old covenant and the new. So he's using all of this priesthood language to build up his argument for who Christ is, what he did, and what he accomplished. Uh, If you look at chapter 8, he continues with this language of the priesthood, but he goes further in establishing that it's through the priesthood of Christ that the new covenant comes about. Then in chapter 9, he begins to make a contrast and comparison of the old and the new in more detail. Not only is it in the priesthood, but it's in the actual rituals itself. These rituals were given by God in a particular time in the ceremonial law. This was supposed to be done just exactly as he said in worship. And they had very specific purpose, not only for uh, worship regularly or sacrifice regularly, but for that one day of atonement when the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies. And the contrast here that the Hebrews writer uses uh, becomes more and more clear when you get to verse 12 of chapter 9, or we'll say verse 11. He says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living Lord, the living God? You see the contrast and comparison in the old covenant and the new the priesthood of humans and the, and the priesthood of the very Son of God who is both very God of very God and very man of very man, that he could be a priest perpetually. You see the sacrificial system being shown in a context of a display in that it was used of God and it did accomplish its work in its proper time, but when Christ came... His blood was something greater. The shed blood of Christ was something greater and and better. And so the blood of bulls and goats was no longer necessary. If the temple had been destroyed, and I could give other examples, but why doesn't the writer say, and don't you see now how God destroyed this temple? And don't you see now how this sacrificial system is no longer, no longer being acted out and worked out because the temple in Jerusalem has been destroyed by Rome? That's a huge historic momentous event that I think 
due to the very context and the examples and the content of this letter and even its purpose to show the contrast between the old covenant and the new. The old priest and the new priest. The old ministry and the new and better ministry. I think we can say that this letter was written before A.D. 70. One writer says, However, the issue of the author's silence regarding the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple is another matter altogether. Now he's dealing with some may debate the present tense uh, issues. He says, but you know what? This issue of the silence regarding the destruction of the temple. He says, those who would date Hebrews after A.D. 70 face the formidable task of explaining its silence on such a momentous event. How could the author, despite its immediacy, have failed to use the only absolutely irrefutable argument in his attempt to show the passing nature of the temple cultus and the Levitical system? That would have been the nail in the coffin of, of his argument. It's to say, don't you see? The temple's gone. God used Rome to destroy it. Providentially, he's done his work. It's over. Boom. Crushed. Smashed. No longer necessary. I think because he doesn't use that example, I think it gives us real evidence to say that the letter was written before A.D. 70. Multiple pastors and theologians date the book as being written in the 60s A.D. You know, you read all this material and, you, you know, you get all these names of men who line up down through history and, and, and put the book in 60s A.D. And they put it in, in various places. Um, some have an, uh, an early dating of A.D. 63. John Owen and a few others put it at uh, A.D. 61. Stuart Alliot places the, the date circa 65 A.D. Um, I, I will admit, Owen, John Owen's argument is very detailed, as it, his arguments always are. Um, it's very detailed, and it, it really lends itself to you saying, okay, I get that, I see it. Um, but I think probably uh, David Allen just says it the best. He says, the evidence for a pre-AD 70 date appears to me to be the stronger. I don't know if it's AD 61 or AD 63 or AD 65 or AD 67. Paul is probably killed around AD 67 or AD 68. It could be in there somewhere. But a lot of people date it somewhere in there around A.D. 65 or earlier because Paul is killed A.D. 67 or A.D. 68, and they think Paul wrote the letter. Well, that brings us to our second question this morning. Who wrote the Hebrews letter? Um, anytime you get into a discussion like this, 
um, some people, you know, th their eyes glaze over and they get frustrated. Some of you have been reading your Bibles long enough. You have your own opinions on it. Um, I'm not going to solve this question for you today. Some of you will already have your opinions. If your opinion is, ends up being different from mine, I'm not mad at you, and please don't be mad at me. If you have some personal vested interest in whoever you think wrote it, and it makes your case for whatever uh, in the Old Testament or the New, please don't take this personal if I don't agree with you. Um, and I'll get to some of that as, as we move along. Um, if you're a person who says, well, I don't really care, well, um, that's okay. Because um, there's some other theologians who say that too. Um, so, but I think it's important for us to have a sense of who may have written this book, even though at the end of the day, I don't think we, we really know or will ever know. Who wrote the Hebrews letter? Well, a lot of thought regarding the dating of the letter coincides with who theologians think wrote the letter. A lot of guys put a lot of emphasis on when the letter was written by who they think wrote it. The interesting thing is that the author of the letter did not specifically name himself. We read the first four verses. He didn't name himself in the address or, or address himself in the greeting. And then when you read the closing of the book, he doesn't address himself in the closing either. Uh, we don't have any names. The author of the letter is not agreed upon, widely not agreed upon, by pastors, Bible historians, and Bible scholars. Origen is one of the, the early church fathers in the 200s A.D. Um, and he says, but who wrote the epistle? To be sure, only God knows. He wrote that in 225 A.D. Now, what that does for us, though, is two things. One, it gives us a sense of even in 225, there was no consensus on who wrote the letter. The other thing, though, it does is to show us that uh, numerous places we've already seen in Clement uh, in the 90s A.D., and now we're seeing Origen, who has a whole section uh, that, that he writes on Hebrews um, in 225 A.D., that the letter to the Hebrews is, is widely being used. And by 225 A.D., it's still very form formidable in Christian thinking and for those who are, are teachers and preachers of the gospel. He said, if these early Christians did not know who wrote Hebrews, one writer says, we certainly will not rise above them. It, it can get harder to know who wrote the letter the further you get away from the time it was written. That's, that's all he's really saying. Um, sadly, Clement doesn't give us any name as to who wrote Hebrews, and he's probably using it uh, about 30 years later after it was written. It would have been nice if he'd have told us. And, and they, they give 
some examples in the early church fathers, but what's strange is, is it's not as though the early church fathers have a consensus themselves. A lot of ink has been spilled and digitized letters typed in discussing the debate. This thing has gone on for time and time and time. But multiple possible authors have been discussed over time. First, I'm going to give you the four main ones. There's been some other ones, but the four main ones. First, and and probably uh, most often stated, I don't know to give a percentage to it or not, but um, I wouldn't say it's overwhelming, but Paul is stated probably, probably most. Um, and John Owen makes a very lengthy good case for the Apostle Paul, and he's not the only one, but he has a lot of good reasoning for the Apostle Paul. Um, and I think it's why a lot of Reformed men... Uh, often say that Paul wrote it. Uh, They read several of the Puritans, uh, John Owen and some of the others, and many of the Puritans uh, look at at Paul. Their reasoning for Paul is multiple reasoning because of the ideas that are uh, purported in the text of the very uh, Old Testament priesthood and the context uh, and the detail of it, their their thinking is this is the mind of Paul at work. Um, And there's a good case for that to be made. Um, Paul is certainly a very detailed man. He was certainly a man who thought widely and understood widely both as a Gentile, an apostle to the Gentiles, but also having his Jewish background, being a Jew of Jews, and so forth. Um, And so I could see the argumentation for Paul. Um, Now, some have argued that Paul couldn't have written it because um, he said that he didn't write in flowery speech and speak in flowery speech and all those kinds of things out of the Corinthians. Um, And I, I I don't buy that. I think Paul was making a case about preaching. I don't think he was making a case that he couldn't write a letter that had some detail to it and was very specific. Um, Paul in and of himself um, would have been a good candidate for the letter because he was nearing the end of his life um, and he was writing a lot of material in those years leading up to the end of his life. But I'm not sure it's Paul because of this second person, and it's Luke. Um, Calvin includes Luke as very possible. Other writers make a case for Luke. Calvin goes as far as to say, I cannot myself be brought to believe Paul was the author of the Hebrews. And he makes a case for Luke. Luke, I think, is an interesting figure here because he's one who was with Paul, consistently and constantly with Paul. Um, and so part of the argumentation for the author of the Hebrews becomes one that Luke and Paul working in tandem together uh, ended up in some way 
um, writing this letter together. Now, I'm not sure they wrote it together, um, but I think there's a lot of influence in the letter uh, from Paul, and I think there's uh, a lot of information that I'll give to you in a moment about why Luke would have written it. Apollos is the third one. Now, Martin Luther thinks Apollos is the most qualified. Uh, Luther says, Apollos was a man of high understanding. The epistle of the Hebrews is indeed his. It's a pretty confident statement. It's very Luther-esque. Okay. Uh, I'm not as convinced about Apollos. Others are. I know several Reformed Baptist pastors that they, they take this position that Apollos is the one that wrote it, and I'm not as convinced about that. Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time explaining to you every one of these. If you really want to study this, I'd be glad to point you in some directions to do so. Um, the fourth one is Barnabas. Tertullian thought Barnabas was eminently qualified. Around A.D. 225, he suggested that Barnabas was the writer of Hebrews. One writer says he did this in light of Barnabas's credentials given in Acts 4, 36 through 37. Quote, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, sold a field and he, that he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. End quote. This writer goes on later and says, As a Levite, Barnabas was fully acquainted with the Levitical priesthood. Besides, he came from the island of Cyprus where he presumably learned the Greek language well. He was familiar with the church and its needs. Um, notice here that he, had, he, he wants to make the case for knowing the Greek language well. That seems to be one of the criteria for really considering someone to being the author of the Hebrews is that would, they would have had to know the Greek language well enough to take all of these Hebrew ideas and put them into the Greek. Um, and so any one of these men, Paul, Luke, Apollos, or Barnabas, they, they had that ability, and they could have done, done that. One writer says, Many have conjectured, some have conjured, but very few have been convinced in the search for the author of the Hebrews. Three observations emerge, he says. First, it is obvious there have been numerous theories as to the authorship of the book. Second, the suggestions made by the patristic, medieval, and Reformation scholars almost always involved persons who are well-known apostles or who were associated with the apostles in some close fashion. So if you're going to think about who would have authored the book of Hebrews, think about someone who would have been very good in the Greek and taking these Hebrew Old Testament ideas and putting them into the Greek and writing them in the Greek or having them written in the Greek. And that would have been one of the apostles. Also, the apostolic authority of the context of the letter and how the church views it historically as a part of the canon of the New Testament. It either had to be someone who was an apostle or someone who was closely associated with the apostles. Luke fits that bill 
course, Barnabas is in there as well. Apollos is in there. And our friend Paul, of course, is an apostle. Now, I think, probably, maybe, Luke wrote it, I think. Here's my reasons why. It's due to the style and writing in the Greek. When I was preaching through the book of Acts and looking at the Greek that Luke wrote in, it's a different type of Greek comparing it to the work that uh, I had done when, say, I preached through 1 John or when I preached through uh, 1 Thessalonians. When you look at Paul's letters, Ephesians, uh, look at Paul's letters in the Greek, the style of the Greek and the writing in the Greek is very different from Acts. It's just very different. Um, it has a, a, a tone of classical Greek to it. This would have been something that, uh, that Luke would have been very used to, especially in his medical background. And so I think that's one of the reasons that, that this may have been Luke. Letter B... Due to the Greek phrases and certain medical terminology used, um, David L. Allen, um, in his um, commentary on the Hebrews, has a section on why he thinks Luke may have been the author. And he goes into an extensive uh, section on these medical terms in the Greek and how the gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles have a lot of this terminology and te technical terminology and the way that technical terminology translates in Hebrews as well. And he not only has that in his opening to the Hebrews commentary, but he wrote a whole book on Luke and authorship of Hebrews. Um, and I found it very helpful to at least think through some of these things. Um, some of this interest in this started for me several years ago as I was preaching through Acts. It just got me to wondering, why is the Acts Greek so different in Luke's style than, say, someone like Paul or John uh, or Mark? Um, and so... Um, Things like that got me to thinking about maybe Luke wrote Hebrews. The third reason would be due to Luke's relationship with Paul and Timothy. Colossians 4.14 indicates that there was a special relationship between Paul and Luke. Um, he, he calls him beloved um, and notes his medical background as one who is helping Paul. Um, and so there's this real special relationship they have, and they're, they're together a lot, and the Acts of the Apostles gives us a sense of how long they're together because Luke is able to give us a lot of information about Paul's life and especially the end of Paul's life. Now, whether Luke was with him during every portion of all of this, I'm not making that case, but I'm saying he was so much with Paul, some of it he would have seen. But because he was with Paul so much, Paul would have been relating that to him. And then Luke 
because of his relationship with Paul, has a very uh, special relationship with Timothy as well. Um, both men journey with Paul, um, and they're, they're right in there together all of the time with him. And you see how much appreciation Paul has for Timothy, but there's a different purpose for Timothy. Timothy is one he's preparing for the ministry. Timothy's one who's being set aside to be an elder and, and left in, in Ephesus. And, you know, there, there's all kind of things that there's preparation going on in Timothy's life for a specific purpose. Luke is in the background with Paul as a historian, taking these notes and, and writing all of these things down. And so I think these relationships that we see, um, you know, formed in this way help us to recognize Luke is right there all of the time. He was gaining this information and these ideas and this understanding. And I think it's probably in being around Paul so much at the end of his life and hearing Paul uh, preach and teach and speak of how Christ was so much better than the old covenant. Luke is the one putting these these things together in writing in his kind of classical Greek style. Um, Now, um, the last is due to Luke's proximity to Paul near the end of his life. Second uh, Timothy 4.11. As Paul is nearing the end of his life, he, he says to Timothy, only Luke is with me. At one point, Demas was with him and Demas was helpful and now Demas had left him and Demas was apostate. And he says, only Luke is with me. As one writer says, this short phrase places Luke and Paul's company at or near the time of his death in Rome, probably A.D. 67, but no later than June 9th of A.D. 68. Because June 9th of A.D. 68 is the date of Nero's suicide. And as this writer says, and the terminus ad quim for Paul's death. His death was approaching. It's Nero who had him put to death. Nero commits suicide on June 9th, A.D. 68. So Paul is dead before that date. Luke is there for all of that. He's with him. And I think there can be a case made that Luke was the one who wrote Hebrews for these reasons. Now, ultimately, we don't know that for certain. And I admit that. Um, And as only Martin Luther can say it, who wrote it is unknown, but also it does not matter. There's Luther. Why does it not matter? Well, because the church used it in the canon. It was so much widely used that over a period of time in uh, collating the canon of of the New Testament and coming up with the books of the New Testament, Hebrews was among those letters recognized as either written by an apostle or someone very close to the apostles like the Gospel of Luke or like Acts or like Mark's Gospel 
and so forth. And so it was included in the canon, and the church recognized it as having authority. And that authority being that it was included in the very Word of God. Well, I got there, but I'm a few minutes late. So I won't take questions, but if you want to have some discussion about those things, I'm glad to do that. We'll continue with our introduction, Lord willing, next week. Since Christ is risen, he may return. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word and the glorious truths that it teaches and preaches. We thank you that we can take time to think about the background and context of the letters that you have had written to your church. May we glory in what you've done, but especially as we go into a time of worship, may we glory in what you've done through your Son, the Lord Jesus, giving praise and honor and glory unto you through him alone by the power of the Spirit. It's in his name we pray, the name of Jesus. Amen.